not as smart as I look. I'm just kidding for any homeschoolers here tonight. Uh, if you want to take your Bible this evening, let's, uh, let's go to the book of 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter number 3. I do want to thank Brother Holt and the church for the opportunity to preach here this week. Uh, I had heard that he had asked my dad to preach and wanted a another competent, smart, eloquent preacher to preach with him, uh, but they were all tied up, so he asked me to come instead. And so uh, every other night, you all get good preaching this week, Lord willing. First Peter chapter 3, and our, our main text for tonight will be that one verse in verse number 18. The Bible says here in First Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Before we begin this evening, so forth in prayer. Father, we come before your throne of grace this evening. Lord, we are thankful to be here tonight. Lord, I pray now that you would take your word and empower it as it's preached. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would use it in a powerful way. Lord, I realize that there is nothing within me that can make it of any effect. But, Lord, it is your word. Lord, you promise that it would not return to you void. And, Father, I pray that you'd use it to encourage us this evening, to reprove us. Lord, whatever it is that is needed, thou knowest. And, Lord, we pray above all that through your word that you'd be exalted and magnified above measure. We ask all these things in the name of your precious Son. Amen. Thank you. You all can be seated. First Peter chapter 3 and verse number 18. Uh, that clock says it's 5.48, so I'll usually preach 30 minutes. I'm going to go based off that clock, okay? I'm just kidding. I'll keep a close eye on the time here. Uh, again, the Bible says here in First Peter chapter 3 and verse number 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death, in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Uh, here in First Peter chapter number 3, as, as the manner usually is of the epistles, uh, many times the writers, and you see this especially with the Apostle Paul, uh, but we see this somewhat to some degree with Peter as well, uh, they begin with the, the theological aspect of, of the epistle as they write to the church. Uh, it is for the purpose of teaching or encouraging the churches as they were suffering during this time. And then generally speaking, more or less halfway through the epistle, they become immensely practical in, a, in applying the doctrines that they've been teaching uh, with going back to the cross every now and then. So you'll notice, for instance, I don't want to miss the context of this whole chapter because it kind of comes to a, a head, if you will, in verse number 18. Uh, but you'll notice that the third chapter begins with uh, instruction for marriage, uh, specifically wives being subjection of their own husband. I wanted to preach on that, but my wife wouldn't let me, so maybe on Friday. Just kidding, making sure you all are awake. Uh, but he begins by giving instruction for marriage, and, and as the proper order is, for the glory of God, the, the husband is to be the head of the wife to lead to love, to care for her, and the wife is to be in submission and subjection to her husband. Uh, but then from here, we, he kind of goes a little bit broader in regards to our treatment of one another down there in verse number 8, where he, he, he is more or less alluding to unity and love within the Lord's church, where he writes, Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. So the point there is that as Christians, it's not merely the dynamic between the husband and wife, but it is to be the dynamic of the whole church, if you will. Uh, we're not to try to take precedence one over the other, but we're to be submission one to one another, unto one another, uh, within the Lord's church. And from there he goes on to the topic of suffering, which is important. You'll notice there uh, in verse 14, for instance, but end if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. 
And so Peter now gets to kind of the, the, almost the meat and potatoes of what the church there was going through in regards to their suffering, and he encourages them there uh, to suffer for righteousness' sake. Uh, and then you'll notice that when we come to verse 18, after all of this, Peter then points back to what Christ has done. Now, he's already done this, but he goes back to what Jesus Christ has done because that is the greatest example we have for any one of the issues that Peter talks about. I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That's a tall order. That's a hard thing to do sometimes. It's hard to love a sinner, and it's hard for a sinner to submit to another sinner. And so the greatest example that we have is that uh, the example that was set by, by Christ himself. In regards to our unity with one another, the greatest example that we have there, again, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you consider his teaching throughout his gospel. There was, this, there was almost this vein of arrogance that, was, that permeated the very first church. Time and time again, they would go to Jesus and ask who would be the greatest. And then finally there toward the end of Matthew, after he addresses the Pharisees, he almost points to the sect of the Pharisees and tells the church there, tells the disciples, don't be like them. Whoever is going to be the greatest, he must be the servant. And whoever will humble himself, he's the one that will be exalted. And so when it comes to our service one to another and our unity within God's church, the greatest example that we have is found in, once again, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So pointing to Christ is Peter's main thought, but as the, the epistle writers usually do, they, they always reference specifically the gospel. That's what I want to hone on tonight for, for just a few minutes. You'll notice there he doesn't say, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, and then he goes on. But he, he pauses for just a moment, and he points once again to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there's something that takes place in this verse, or I shouldn't say it takes place in the verse, but there's something that has taken place that Peter alludes to within this verse. He alludes to an exchange that took place, the just for the unjust. Now, it's important, y'all bear with me for just a few minutes, all right? Uh, within the realm of, of, of humanity, if you will, there is this idea that's almost unspoken, and that is, a trade, any kind of barter or trade, and it must fall within the boundaries and the realm of equal value. Uh, if, if, if I were to tell you all I had a 1987 Corolla outside, and I don't know if anyone here is a Cadillac tonight, but if I offered a trade, you would be right to deny that trade because it's, it's not the same thing. My car will run a lot longer than yours will. I'm just kidding. But, but we all understand that it's, it's, you, you almost borderline leave the realm of sanity when someone would offer something that it's not of equal value. We, we see that, of course, in the market system. I mean, the, there are things that they sell at stores, and sometimes prices make sense, sometimes they don't, but it is what it is. And likewise, with one another, if we're to swap tools or, or whatever it is, it has to be more or less of equal value. And it's that idea that kind of governs a majority of, of how we live our life. Uh, it, it, if there's a, a job that needs to be done, is it worth my time to give up so many hours to do that job? For mowing the yard, majority of the time, it's not worth it, especially when it's like 95 degrees out. But, but you understand that, that that idea of something more or less being equal is of utmost importance. And for that reason, the Bible even says along the lines in the book of Proverbs that 
uh, uh, wow, I've completely lost the words, but an unjust scale. You recall the, the picture there is that if it's an, an, an uneven balance there, that's an abomination to God. And the point was, quite literally speaking, back then, if you sold a pound of sugar, you had a pound weight on one side, you put a pound of sugar there, a pound of flour, whatever it might be, and you paid for that pound. Those who were greedy and didn't want to sell as much, they shaved that pound off just a little bit and sell it as a pound. And even those details, God absolutely despises. And so there's this idea that, again, governs our life, that it must fall within the realms of that which is fair. Now we come to the gospel. And for one reason or another, we all think of the salvation provided for us. We think it falls within this realm that it's fair. The reality that it's not, it's not fair. Maybe it's because of pride. We all still wrestle with our sinful flesh and sometimes we think we're more than we really are. Maybe it's just a lack of understanding of who God is and how bad we truly are. But there's this idea that the transaction that took place within the gospel is fair. And the God-man would die to redeem me, and I will live for all of eternity in his service on this side of heaven, and for his glory and on, on that side of heaven. And so it's, it's an equal, or more or less equal, exchange. After all, in the end, it seems that it, it worked out just fine, did it not? We are saved, Christ is raised from the dead, And after it's all said and done, we'll live with him for all of eternity, happily ever after. And so, again, we think of the gospel falling into the realm of that which is fair. But Peter says here, he says again, notice there, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Think about it. The Bible says in the book of Romans, and I want to read the verse lest I butcher it. I, I do that enough at my own church, so I'll, I'll try not to do that up here for you all either. But the Bible says in the book of, of Romans chapter 5, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. The idea that Paul is getting at there in Romans chapter 5 and verse 7 is that, yet peradventure for a good man some would even, uh, some would even dare to die. If you were to ask me to give my daughter's life for someone else, I wouldn't do it. There's no amount of money in the world that you could give me for me to give my daughter's life for someone else. Well, Paul is making the argument, maybe if it's a righteous man, someone might do it. Maybe if it's for a good man, if someone said, if your daughter will give her life for this other person, and, and in 40 years that person will discover the cure for cancer, and with this one sacrifice, millions of lives will be saved. And maybe I would consider it but I can tell you all in the end, I probably wouldn't do it. I'm fairly certain of that. So Paul is saying is that maybe for a good man, maybe for a righteous man, but the point Paul is getting at, and the same point Peter's getting at, is Christ did not die for a good man. He did not die for a righteous man. He did not come to call the righteous. He came to, to save the lost. And so it was the just for the unjust. Now, I want to dive into this just a little bit more in regards to what it means to be unjust. All right, y'all bear with me for just a moment. In short, we are not right 
We are not righteous. God is the one who is all, all right. He is ultimately righteous, and He is the one who is just, and, and we're not. We're not justified. We are not just, even in a simpler sense. We're not fair creatures. We are, through and through, that which is unjust. Now bear with me for a few minutes. Go over, if you would, uh, to the book of Ephesians chapter 2 to get a description of this. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be turning a little bit tonight. And so have your, uh, have your thumbs ready there. Ephesians chapter number 2. Now, Paul, in the, in the first three verses, Paul goes again to, to who we were before Christ. So he says there in verse 1, And you have be quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, now, really quick for the sake of time, just to hit a few of the high points in these three verses. Verse number one kind of summarizes the whole ordeal. And you, happy quicken, who were dead. That is man in sin. We are dead. We are dead to God. We cannot see him. We cannot hear him. We cannot fellowship with him. And the reason we are dead is because we're the ones who've sinned against him. We can't pin the fall on God because God made everything good and man is the one who came along and messed everything up. And because of that, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now in verses 2 and 3, he kind of describes this a little bit. Now he says, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world. In other words, we walked how everyone else walked. We acted how everyone else acted. We, we reacted and behaved and, and we did everything else that the world did. The, the irony of man and sin and his pride is that he believes himself to stand out from the crowd when in reality he's just like the crowd. So we're not autonomous, we're not independent, we're like everyone else. He says there, to the, uh, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So it's not that we're just even walking to the course of this world or, or living or behaving like the world, we're actually living and behaving like the devil himself. We are proud, arrogant, self-centered, self-worshipping creatures just like the devil now, you remember when Jesus told them that, isn't John 6, or I think it's John 6, they looked at Christ and said that he was the one who was possessed by a devil to make such an accusation like that. We, we live and act how the devil wants us to live and act. He goes on to say, uh, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He says in verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, the lusts of our flesh, we were nothing more than animals living to the whim and wishes of our flesh. Whatever the flesh, we had no control over our flesh. Whatever our flesh desired, that's exactly what we did. And see, he says, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. There's something deeply troubling about that expression. Animals are instinctual. They're not intelligent like we are in the sense that they can go and learn and grow in that sense. But they're, they're wholly instinctual. It is almost this, this, surfa, this surface level intellect. But man, we are now servants to our physical, humanistic instincts. But where we are a depraved creature that is, has still some semblance of being made in the image of God, this depravity is not just skin deep. It goes all the way within. 
And so he says there in verse 3, and of the mind, he, said, he finishes up by saying, and we're by nature the children of wrath even as others. Paul gives us another description. Go on over, if you all would, to Ephesians chapter 4, just a, a couple of chapters over. Notice in verse 18 and 19, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, again, you can spend a lot more time in this. I'll let Brother Holt take care of that in the future. But the point is, we are driven by this deep-seated instinctual lust. And that's what we worship, and that's what dictates how we live And he says there, to work all uncleanness, but notice, with greediness. Greediness. I don't know about how many of you all enjoy it, or maybe some of you don't. That's fine, too. I I really enjoy hunting. I really, really enjoy deer hunting, especially. Um, And the problem with deer hunting, for my family, usually we'll live off the deer meat for the year. About two or three deer, now that we have a little one, a little bit more. Two or three deer is about good. You all know what happens when you love hunting and you already, you know, you've already got all you need. You want to do it again. I was telling Lauren on the way up here, coming up 75, there are deer everywhere. Come here. I just, there's just something in me. I just want to get back out there and hunt again. But you all know how it is. That it's not true just, just hunting or deer hunting. That's how I am with ice cream. Not just one bowl. I want, I want more than one bowl, right? It's not just one more dollar. I want an extra dollar. I want 10 more. I want 100 more dollars. Well, this, this lust that is within us, Paul says here, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We work all in cleanness with green. We want more. It's not enough to, to have committed and given in to one sin or another. We desire so much more. Now, notice if you all would just really quick, we'll just read through some of these. But I want us to have a, a, a full picture. Go back, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. Again, a very definitive passage on man's depravity, but just go, verse 29, just really quick, hit a few of the high points here. He says, speaking of man being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, uh, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boast, uh, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural a- affection, uh, I- I- implacable, unmerciful. Now, again, really quick, just for the sake of time, notice what he says there, the very last verse, without understanding, co- covenant breakers, without natural affection. I remember reading, I saw this headline, it's been a few years ago, and it's not my purpose to, to get on a, any kind of political soapbox, but there's this headline where there was a girl who was throwing puppies off a bridge. I, I didn't like it. I, it, it was bad. Okay, I like dogs. You don't do that, all right? But she was charged with animal cruelty. Ironic enough, it's perfectly fine to go kill an unborn baby. Well, what's happened in a world where people are more concerned for puppies Again, I like puppies, not justifying what this girl did by any stretch of the imagination, but it's okay to go kill unborn babies without natural affection. He says they're uh, implacable. Now, implacable is an old English word, and the point of implacability is that uh, we can't be placated. In other words, we can't be appeased. Uh, Brother Pearson sins against me. He makes fun of my tie, which I thought I heard him whisper that to his wife when they walked in. Just kidding. Now I'm mad. And he could give me a million dollars, but I don't care. He could give me a brand new car, I don't care. 
He has sinned against me. You know, the funny thing is about humanity is that we want to think that we're more gracious and merciful than we really are. How do you react the last time someone cut you off on the interstate? <laughs> See what I'm saying? Implacable. And then he says they're unmerciful, right along those lines. He repeats this, if you all would, just, just to read it with me. He repeats this in 2 Timothy. Go over there, if you all would, for just a moment. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, we, ha- we have a lot of the same list, and he, he's actually warning Timothy now of what's going to happen during the last days. In verse number 2, he writes, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. He's not describing Hitler. He's describing humanity as a whole. And finally, let's finish up here in Romans chapter 3 again. Again, another familiar passage. Romans chapter number 3. Again, we don't have time to delve into all the details of this, but beginning in verse number 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh God. After God, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Again, long list, but just hone in on just a few of those. Notice what he says there. Destruction and misery are in their way. You know, what's funny about uh, children, and I'm not necessarily saying this is bad. I'm just showing what's our natural tendency. Uh, When when Lena gets a new toy, you know, sometimes her aunts and uncles, she's very spoiled. They'll get her Legos or something to build with. And, and, uh, you know, at first she's nice and gentle, as little girls seem to be at first. And she'll build something, and, and it's all nice. We'll help her. And then after like 30 seconds, she gets this look on her face and smashes it. And she loves doing that. I don't really blame her, but no one taught her that. Now, she is destroying that, that what was built. Now, again, I'm not saying that's necessarily an act of sin, but there's something in, in humanity that has this tendency to destroy. You, I mean, you take, you take a family for just a moment, the institution that God himself made. Husbands provoke their children to wrath and mistreat them. They do not love their lives, but they lord their authority over their wives. Sometimes it's backwards. Sometimes a woman takes the lead as a spiritual leader and, and, and wants the man to submit to her. What does all that do? It destroys. And you see the same dynamic within the church. You see the same dynamic in a secular company. There's a tendency to destroy. He says destruction and misery. Is it any wonder people are miserable at times? But lastly here, before we move on, notice there in verse number, uh, awesome place here, they're back in verse number 12. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. Unprofitable. Now, there are some ideas that we come across in, in this world that are almost totally unfathomable to us. You take, for instance, time and eternity. Many times we look at eternity as endless time, 
But in all actuality, it's, it's a place where time doesn't exist. All right, so we live in a moment-to-moment realm in eternity. There is no moment-to-moment. There just is. That is why God is in the past, present, and future, or as we call those terms. Right? There are some things we can't really completely wrap our minds around, right? Now, I want to submit that one of those terms, of the many out there, one big one is the idea of being unprofitable. Now, biologically speaking, I've heard, I'm not a doctor, when you eat a meal, four, six, eight hours, it makes its way through your digestive tract, and then you disregard that which is not useful. You know what I'm saying? If you don't know what I'm saying, go see a doctor tonight, okay? (laughs) Right? Now, that's true of every creature, right? Except maybe single-celled organisms. I don't really know, right? Now, what's interesting is that I have chickens in our backyard. Chickens do the same thing. But even that which comes out of a chicken, it's not unprofitable. You all know why? It's good for a garden. You see what I'm getting at? Even the very waste and nastiness that comes out of any given animal is not unprofitable. It's good for something. And yet the only creature of which the Bible says that is totally unprofitable, good for absolutely nothing, mankind in his sin. Now, forgive me for lingering so long on this point, but I want us to see we are unjust. We're we're not slightly skewed from that which is right, but still immensely usable. We are totally unjust. I like how Christ finished the parable there in, in, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 7 where he talks about how when the house fell, great was the fall of it. You know, there, there, the, almost the idea there, there's nothing you could salvage. It's not even worth digging through the, through, the, through the wreck of the house because great was its fall. There is this idea within our society, people are ready to admit that something is wrong with the world. You don't have to look very far to realize that something is wrong with the world. But what people misunderstand is that even though there's something wrong with the world, if we try hard enough, there is some goodness to be found within every one of us. And so it's worth to keep on trying, right? According to the Bible, we're unprofitable. Unprofitable. We are unjust. There, there is nothing good about us. We have sinned against God. We have ruined everything that he has made. We have rebelled against God. We've ruined our own purpose and we like it. Mankind as a whole wants nothing to do with God. Jesus Christ didn't come here and then start a petition and say, hey, if you want to go to heaven, sign on the dotted line and we'll see what we can do. No, he went to people that really, initially, they didn't want anything to do with him. I mean, look at Peter, James, and John. They argued about who would be the greatest in the kingdom, right? They, they wanted to call fire down from heaven when people were making demos. That's a real good Christian Baptist thing to do. Call fire down from heaven on someone who offends you. Look at how they were. My point is, dear church, there's we're totally unjust through and through. There are no redeeming qualities within us. Peter says of us that it was the just for the unjust, having touched on what the unjust is, just momentarily, very quickly. In contrast, the just was given for us. The Old Testament makes it absolutely, abundantly clear that God is sinless. He is 
thrice holy. I like what one writer said, that there is no other attribute of God that the Bible repeats three times. The Bible does not say that God is love, 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 or righteousness, 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 but he is holy, holy, holy. The book of Habakkuk says that there were of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look upon iniquity. So many times people will come to this and they, they have this idea, well, God's just sticking his nose up on the air because he's too good for us. In reality, he can't look at us. I love my wife and I love my daughter and I didn't really want to watch when she gave birth, but I was in a position where I couldn't look away and that was, that was something else. It's kind, it's kind of unnerving if you've been there. It's not that I thought myself too good, but I, I didn't really want to, I don't want to see it. You all know what I'm saying? God's not there because he's too good, although he is. It's that he can't look at it. We are that repulsive in the sight of God. Considering, obviously, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, as John chapter 1, verse 14 makes known, we also know then that Jesus Christ is absolutely pure and absolutely sinless. 1 Peter 2.22, very close to our text, Peter says, speaking of Christ, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, who knew no sin. It's not that Jesus was 99% perfect, it's that there was absolutely no sin within Jesus Christ. It's not even enough to say that Jesus Christ and humanity are on opposite sides of the spectrum, opposite ends of the, of the spectrum. Jesus Christ is not even on the spectrum. He's in a league all of his own. Not even the angels come close to the holiness of God. And that's what makes this verse so heavy. The just was given to the unjust. You'll notice again back in our text, I was just there. If you all are there, you'll, you'll read it with me. But you'll notice once again that Peter says of them in the 18th verse, Christ also hath su once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. We can't gloss over the idea that he suffered. Isaiah tells us of his suffering in, in Isaiah chapter 53 and verses 6 and through 10 that Jesus Christ took our place under the suffering of God. The Bible tells us that, that uh, the, 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 for the wages of sin is death. And so what we deserve is, is death to, to, to the uttermost. It's not this idea that we we cease to exist. It's that we exist, but under the holy hatred and eternal wrath of God. That's what death is. And yet the Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah 53 and verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. I've often told the church that Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's total depravity. We've gone astray, but it's not bad enough. We've gone astray. We've caused other people to go astray. What the verse should say is the Lord hath laid on us the iniquity of us all. Why? Because we deserve it. But the Bible says, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise us. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him, is the idea there. And out of a desire to redeem humanity, the God-man came to this world and suffered in our place. One writer, one preacher says that he, 
He suffered, if you've ever told a lie, he suffered as a liar. Um, I'm learning quickly how, how much discipline it takes to raise children, both to be a good parent, um, not to be a childish parent, which is kind of me, uh, but also how much, how, much, uh, how much discipline she needs sometimes. And one thing I'm trying to hone in on is, you know, the proper amount of, you know, the, the punishment must fit the crime. You know what I'm saying? And you all know how that is. Well, if, if someone would ever discipline my child as if she robbed a bank when all she did was spilled a few drops of water, that wouldn't set well with me, right? Because a punishment doesn't fit the crime. You know, Jesus Christ came to this world considering all the sinners he has redeemed. He died like every one of those sinners deserved. You ever stop to think that Rahab the harlot joined the children of Israel by all accounts, and she's even in the lineage of Christ there in Matthew. You ever stop to think that Jesus Christ died as, as a harlot? As a murderer? Now it's weird, isn't it? It's weird to think of the thrice holy God on those terms. But how else would he save us? He didn't die to pay for half of their sins. He died to pay for all of their sins. And he died like a sinner under the holy hatred of God to the point that God could not even look at him. And Christ cried on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Of all people, why me? You know why? Because you all sin, my sin was upon the person of Jesus Christ. Again, it had to be this way if we wanted to be saved, if we wanted any kind of hope. Since we cannot save ourselves, animal sacrifices can't save us. Man cannot do it. Only God can. But God had to become man. Why would he do any of it? The only reason we have is because of his thrice holy love that is, again, really hard to wrap our minds around. He loved us so much that he concocted the plan of salvation where his son would die in our stead. I guess the point that I'm getting at in all of this is that it's not fair. It's not fair in any, in any sense of the idea of what fair is. It's not fair that Jesus would die the way that he died Paul makes it abundantly clear there in the, the end of the book of Acts that God didn't do it in a corner. He chose of all the ways to die. It wasn't lethal injection or anything. There. It was by hanging on a cross, one of the most torturous ways to die. It's not fair that Jesus Christ died that way. And it's not fair that he died for us. Why not the angels who are somewhat supernatural in their own right? I mean, I, you, you think of the story with the Assyrians, 185,000 Assyrians in one night. If I were going to save any creature, it would be the angels because of all that they could do for me. If I were to save any creature, it would be the dogs or cats who have never sinned against me. But God chose to save us of all creatures. He chose to save us. And what does he get in return? He gets us. I mean, again, I don't, want to, I, don't, I don't want to see a show of hands or anything, but how many of you were as excited and, and prayed up and, and ready for this revival as you know you should have been? And I, I don't know anyone's heart. I know how guilty I am. How many of us decide whether or not we're going to go to church on Sunday morning, especially in the dead of winter? 
What did God get in return for giving His Son? He got you and me. And I'm sure we're all wonderful people when the moments are right. But by and large, I don't know if I'd trade my daughter for for any one of us, (laughs) including myself. And yeah, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. It wasn't fair that he would die, and we can never do enough to repay him for what he did. But what's astonishing is that he doesn't expect us to repay him. It's just a free gift. It's not fair that now we're in the inner circle, Ephesians 1.6, we're accepted in the beloved. Like what one writer said, that in the Godhead there is this, there is this nucleus of infinite love between one another that not even the angels are part of that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus died, he didn't die to put us on neutral ground or the same ground as the angels or even just a little bit up. He died to make us accepted in that nucleus. Notice what Peter says in verse 18, that he might bring us to God. Last Sunday, we were looking at Jesus and the Pharisees there in Matthew 23, and right before he pronounces the woes, he, he delves down into their heart and how they act and, and how their, their pride and their hypocrisy, right? I've told the church that Christianity, Jesus didn't come to die to give us a new set of morals like the Pharisees thought the Messiah would do. He didn't die so we could be better people and have a, a higher kind of philosophy or a higher kind of morality or a higher kind of, of, of ideology, right? The reason he came and died was to bring us to God. What is that? That's a relationship. Now we're in God's presence. Now where we were once dead, we're alive to God. We can see God and we can talk to God and God talks to us and leads us through his spirit. He's given us his word and his church and he's given us preachers and he's done all of these things for us of all creatures. He has brought us to God. For those of you who are here tonight and you think what it means to be a Christian is just the moral aspect of it, you have it all wrong. Now, is there a morality to it? Of course there is. There's a morality to anything in life, but that's just the peripheral. I did not marry my wife so she would have a man who would take out the trash and sometimes do the dishes like two or three times a year and do all these things right now. It's good when she can make me do that, but I married my wife because I wanted to be in a relationship with her. I didn't marry her to have a cook and clean and, 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 and to do the dishes and all these different things. I, I wanted to be in a relationship with her. Now, do I do all those things? Or is there a to-do list in, in being in a relationship? Of course there is, but it's peripheral to the main points. Christianity is, is not some kind of new morality. Christianity is to know God and to walk with God. And so as we bring this to a close here this evening, dear church, sometimes as Christians, somewhere along the way, we forget that. Again, as stated earlier, we get too big for our britches and we think, well, it makes sense that God would die for me. Look at all that I can do and look at all that I've done. Now, we may not want to ever admit that out loud, but I think sometimes those thoughts cross our mind. I really hope I'm not the only one, at least. Sometimes we forget the glory of the gospel. We forget the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And in turn, we, get, we, we wind up having this low view of God. 
God's here. And, you know, we're right there. And, and Jesus had to bridge that small gap that just, just, just nudges right up there. That's a low view of God. If you have a low view of God, you have a high view of man. If you have a low view of man, you have a high view of God. All of that leads to a weak Christianity. We easily grow complacent. And we come to the place that the gospel itself is so commonplace to us. It's just, it is what it is. You know, it's, it's, it is what it is. I grew up in the Philippines, for those, for those who don't know me, which would be the majority of you. Uh, you'll meet my dad tomorrow night. And he was a missionary in the Philippines. And, and uh, whenever we come home here to the States, I was so amazed at how just different things were. I was telling my wife on the way up here that uh, the last time we came home, or one of the last, I was 16, and one of the last times we came home, and uh, me and my sister, we were going down the interstate, had some friends pick us up from the airport. And I told Lauren that me and my sister, like, man, the roads are wide. They're smooth compared to the Philippines. Now, you all have UDF up here in Cincinnati. I thought when we'd come back to the States and live in a town with UDF, there's no UDF down in Lexington. It's, uh, I know the Lord puts, he never puts on us more than we can bear, but man, sometimes that one's tough. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Halfway. <laughs> Um, we, for a little while, my dad owned a place. It was my grandparents' place in, in Hillsborough, Ohio. I'm sure some of you know where that is, about 45 minutes from here. And I, it, it was just seven acres, but I was out in the country. And it was, I, I loved it. I, I grew up in the, in the city in the Philippines. And so to come to a place where there's actually snow and it gets below 85 degrees and there's, there's delicious ice cream and there's smooth and wide roads, it was, it was just, it was amazing. But you all know what happened after like three months? Eh. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, yeah, that's cool. Now, for a lot of things in life, that doesn't really matter. When it comes to the gospel of Christ, let's be careful we don't grow complacent. To those who are here tonight and lost, this is the power of God unto salvation. Again, He didn't come to die just to, to make you a little bit better than who you are. A better version of who you are still is not good. He came to make you like Christ to make you accepted in the Beloved, to save you from your sin, to save you from His very wrath. You're here tonight on lost, and I urge you look to Jesus Christ for salvation, because one day it's going to be eternally too late. You keep putting it off, you keep putting it off, because there are so many things that seem to be so much more important. I realize life is busy, but when the day comes, you stand before God, and God says, depart from me, I never knew you. You're a sinner, you're going to regret it. You're here tonight and lost. Look to Christ. As we begin this, this, uh, this few days here, the revival, again, it's a privilege to be here. I, I always wrestle with, I've not preached many revivals, but the few I have, I always wrestle with where to start. Because I know sometimes, not sometimes, many times, I need it just as much as anyone else. And it occurred to me that if the gospel of Jesus Christ is more than enough to save us, I think it's more than enough to revive us. So I turn all of our attention to the cross tonight, the just or the unjust. I don't call any of us to be better. I just call all of you to look to Jesus Christ because that right there is the most glorious thing that has ever happened. So for the Christian and the sinner tonight, I heard you look to Christ and his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. For the whole...